All right, Ben, see if you can guess this. Oh, this is a wonderfully charming sounding frog. The rhythm, the beat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're allergic to it. I'm allergic to it. <laughs> Oh my gosh! You're gonna you're gonna give me nothing. You're gonna give me no clue. I'll give you a clue. Okay. Oh, it's hard to think of a clue to be honest. I know that little about them. Ah, oh, okay. It's one of those ones. You picked them for a cool sound. <laughs> yeah, I picked it for a cool sound. I also picked it. Okay, I'll tell you why I picked it. That might give you a hint. I picked it because it can change colour, albeit over long periods of time. Oh my gosh. Could it be I don't know that that'll help that much, to be honest. I can only think of two frogs off the top of my head that can change colour. We've got Indian bullfrogs with their like yellow transition during mating season, but that's not over a long period of time, that's quite rapid. And the other is the frogs that we covered that were in the uh, Chernobyl exclusion zone that were becoming melanized because of the radiation. Hello. Do you know what? You are extremely close, mate. I'm pretty sure that was the European tree frog, right? European tree frog? Yes. It must yeah, have man. been. It was definitely European something frog. I think so. And that species is in the same genus as this one. So the frog cool is also Hyla. similar. Because I swear Hyla? we played it recently. Yeah, it's Hyla, yeah. But it's from further east. So it's going to be and the... actually, another clue, another another clue, another clue, just to sneak another clue in there. It's kind of related to one of the animals we did in last week's episode from where that was from, if anyone can remember that. That's a big clue. So it's a it Japanese depends. tree frog. Yeah, it is indeed. Wicked. And it's called Hyla japonica. Japonica. You can have a point yep. for that because you gave me one pretty generously a few weeks ago. I can't remember the circumstances of it right now, but I remember <laughs> feeling like you've been pretty kind. So that's two all, mate. So well done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who's keeping track? Me. No, me. Oh, okay. I want to win. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so Hyla japonica, this is a species of tree frog. It looks like the European tree frog. It's just a green frog, essentially, mm-hmm. that's got long legs. And it's native to Japan, Korea, China, and northern Mongolia. Yeah, and it's green. It looks similar to the European tree frog. Being as they're from quite far north, they hibernate, they eat bugs. And as I said, the reason I chose this particular species, and you twigged on to the fact that it's similar to their uh, congeners, the European tree frog, is that these can change colour. So um, there was a paper came out that showed that if you put them on a kind of mottled sort of like a checkerboard background they'll become mottled and if you um put them in darker surroundings they'll go a bit darker and similarly if you put them in light surroundings they'll go lighter over what sort of time period about three weeks oh okay okay yeah that i think that's classed as longer time periods yeah yeah so yeah it's not super fast that's but you cool. know, it's not super slow but of course color changing is similar famously to the behavior of a certain type of lizard That is The Chameleons, which leads us nicely on to today's episode. So, yeah, we're talking about chameleons, talking about weapons. So we've got a paper here by Van Cleek, Han and Viennes, 2023, Macro Evolution of Sexually Selected Weapons, Weapon Evolution in Chameleons, published in Evolution. Weaponized lizards, huh? Weaponized lizards, yes, but crucially not weaponized bacteria 
because that's a myth. You know, the whole, that's the whole Komodo. It's completely random for me to bring this up. But yeah, the whole Komodo dragon, that was weaponized bacteria. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. The, the saliva. But that turned out to be a myth. So these are real weapons. Yes. What have we got? What's in their arsenal? In the, yeah. Okay. You want to just, you want to go through the list of the weapons well, that the aliens have? Yeah. Like, it, I like I, it. I think that some of these aspects aren't, I wouldn't have put into the sort of weapon category necessarily. They're sort we, of, yeah. yes, you'd connect them put, to maybe sexual selection or something along those lines, but not necessarily weaponry. Yes, I agree. I think that in this paper, they're using the word weapon quite loosely. But, you know, they talk about it. They talk about it. So, yeah, they're using weapon to describe anything that a chameleon has that it uses in male to male competition. So anything that male chameleons are using as a means of competing with each other. So these can be traits which are used in physical combat directly, like horns or traits which they use to intimidate rivals, so like signals, or traits that are used to do both. So, yeah, I think the crucial thing is that these are all things which are playing a role in sexual selection for the chameleons. And obviously, like, sexual selection isn't just females choosing males, although a lot of the studies that have been conducted up to now sort of disproportionately focus on female choice. But actually, a lot of sexual selection occurs through competition between males so this is where the males are kind of either battling or intimidating each other and sort of gaining access to females that way so yeah let's go through all the things that the chameleons were judged to have and i think we should start at the least threatening and ramp up into the most (laughs) badass weapon (laughs) so yes i'm picturing another mad max thunderdome scene where he's (sighs) dropping all the guns on the table, right? And the knives, and it's just layering up and layering up. It's the the yes. chameleon equivalent of that. <laughs> this is exactly it. So, yeah, they had a nice image in the paper showing all of the um, things which the chameleons have, which can be considered weapons. So what's the least... I'd say the least intimidating... Maybe the tail spines? Tail spines, yeah. I'm not threatened by that. Like, there's just little spikes on the tail. If you were to exaggerate the tail spines to stegosaurus levels, then we're talking. But it's not, is but it? It's, it's, it's like they're tiny. No. Yeah. They're tiny, and I'm imagining they're a little bit fleshy as well. So yeah. I don't know what they do. Maybe make you look a bit bigger. I would also kind of similarly say that the tail crest, which is just like a ra- raised bit of the tail, you know, like kind of a bit of a spinosaurus feel, if yes. we're going dinosaur analogies. And similarly, the dorsal spines. Again, not that threatening. I mean, you could see that they're making the animal appear a little bit larger. Yeah. So maybe that's dorsal spines, dorsal crest. So that's spines on the back and the crest on the back. Not that threatening. What about the gula spines, which are the spines on the throat? They're not. They're kind of a bit threatening. They give it a bit of an edge, but yeah. Same with gula crest, because really... that can be enlarged, presumably. That's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can look a bit dangerous when they sort of puff it out, at least. Well, yeah, you know, it's implying big mouth. Oh, throat. my gosh, I'm going to bite you. Bigger mouth, bigger yeah. bite force, scary. I think all those yeah. things connect up. And then if we move on to the kind of slightly more aggressive ones, you've got the cask. So that's like on the sort of top of the head, you've got like a big lump, I guess. Mate, dinosaurs are so perfect for this. Yeah. The analogy of this one would be the Triceratops's sort of cask like the big sort of i don't know yeah the cask you just call it the cask 
the big flat bit that is behind the head that yeah. makes it look imposing and scary. Chameleons pretty much have one of those. It's called the cask. And it does actually have a role in combat. The One of the, um, uh, what's it, what they call Jackson's chameleons. If Jackson's chameleons have a big cask, it improves their likelihood of success in combat. So that does have a use. And then obviously you've got the things, occipital lobes. So that's like the kind of, like a cask, but behind the head. And it's like more meaty. They sort of look like <laughs> weird ears. <laughs> they do they look like inflated. a weird big ear. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like <laughs> yeah. that. And they're fleshy. They're soft. So yeah, they can kind of be like stuck out. It makes the animal look a bit bigger. Um, kind of similar to a cask, really, just a slightly different structure. And then you've got, you know, what I would consider to be the kind of main event of chameleon weapons, which are the horns over the eyes, which they call superorbital spines. So they're just like essentially horns protruding from the eyes and then you've got the what they call the rostral appendage which is like the key the main nose horn. yeah the rhino horn yeah the rhino horn yeah. yeah so you've got the rhino horn and some of them have you know a rhino horn and also the other two horns so the triceratops style um which is of course why trioceros the genus of chameleons was called that yeah it's three horn even though some of them now disappointingly have evolved to lose the horns or never had them in the first place. But yeah, so, th- well, that's pretty much all of the things that they've listed as sort of weapons that these chameleons can possess. Hopefully that gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Yeah. The idea behind this paper was to look at across like most species of 165, chameleons. 165, I think they had. Yeah, which is pretty impressive because what are they, like 200 and something? 219. 219. Yeah. So, okay. But so, you know, pretty good. They needed descriptions of, you know, enough evidence to say whether they've got weapon yes, no, for all those weapons we just described. They needed information on mass for both males and females to, to examine whether it's sort of a, a male-selected trait or a female-selected trait, the weapons, I mean. So that sort of narrows it down to uh, 165. And they bring up a couple of times in the paper that they're quite fortunate that chameleons have had decent phylogenetic studies done on them. So the sort of backbone for this whole study is already in existence of how they all relate together. And this whole study is about mapping where these weapons appear in that big phylogenetic tree to work out when they will have appeared, when they would have disappeared, whether they're sort of hot spots or cold spots, like some species or closely related have similar weapons, that sort of thing. Mm. And I like the method they used to actually discover this information when they were working out which chameleons had which weapons. They just looked in books. One of the books they use, so they use uh, Glor and Vensi's, obviously very famous in particularly Madagascan herpetology. Mm-hmm. Amazing I used, reference book about... I used it for some of the stuff on my master's. Yeah, and the other one is Colin Tilbury's Chameleons of Africa and Atlas, and that is an insanely cool book. It was actually reprinted recently. I need to get a copy, but I was lent a copy while I was doing my master's on chameleons, and it's just got awesome pictures and descriptions of basically all the chameleons in Africa, Asia, and Europe. So the authors of this paper just had the luxury of flicking through those books, looking at all the chameleons and deciding whether or not the males or females had these weapons. And as you said, plotting them on a big family tree of all the chameleons to look at when they evolved. Maybe they also did some modeling to see if these um, these particular weapons had been lost evolutionarily through time. And yeah, I guess we could just pick out some broad stuff about what they found. So if you're wondering which chameleon genera have weapons, well, it's actually all of them. There is no single entire genus that doesn't have at least one weapon in it. But obviously there are some chameleons with more weapons than others. Yeah, what were the For... most heavily armed chameleons then? Who would be <laughs> the worst to go against in a fight? 
Well, it generally tended to be bigger ones had more weapons. Right. But I would say, let's have a look at their little thing. Which are the most heavily armed? Like, Fursifer, right? Fursifer's got, yeah, Fursifer's got game. Yeah, Triosaurus. Not surprisingly, as they're named after horns, they're actually probably the number one, number one he- most heavily armed. I'd say. Yeah, Triosaurus. Well, and they're quite Camilio, big. Some of them, right? Some of them are. Yeah, I would, like, they're pretty variable as well. Like, yeah, but yeah, they are. They are generally larger than a lot. You know, especially if you consider that they're being compared to like some of the tiny little leaf chameleons, which is just like a thumb. You know. Oh yeah, like the Brachasias. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of leads. Yeah, that leads on perfectly because Brukhazy is one of the least armoured. They were in one of the cold spots of, of, like, number of weapons. Yeah, and even worse were Repellion, which are, like, another another group which are sort of... They're very small. <laughs> they're often described as small and typically brown. And to be fair, they are small and they loosely resemble leaves. And they are typically brown to blend in with the leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the one thing I'd say about Repellion is they might not have a lot of armour, but if you Google one, they do have proper little faces. I think because... (laughs) So you're saying they they fail to quantify the sort of vibe these chameleons give off through through attitude and facial expressions. Is that another weapon they should have quantified? Angry eyebrows? All I'm saying is there's something about a chameleon that has no horns, no crests, it, doesn't it need gives them, them a much more human element. They look a little bit more human. And maybe that makes... I'm not saying that has any advantage to how they survive, but it does make them a little bit more relatable. <laughs> they look they look disarmingly human, honestly. I'm telling you. you <laughs> it kind of freaked me out. Repellion. Just Google it. Anyway, so... um, Yeah, they don't really have a lot in the way of weaponry, which is a shame. But, you know, they probably don't need it. Otherwise, they'd have it. So, yeah, it's just but a what's- case that... Interesting about the ones where the cold spots is it does appear that this is not a, oh, they never evolved them sort of situation. But it, it sort of, the suggestion is that their ancestral strait would have had weapons of some type. So it's implying that these groups have lost weapons as opposed to having never had them. Yep, that's it. And they say that, like, pretty much all the weapons were gained and lost repeatedly through yeah. time. So, you know, they evolve in one species and they're lost in another species where they're no longer needed. Or, you know, a species diversifies into multiple species and then one of them needs it, one of them doesn't, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as you'd expect, the earlier a weapon first evolved, the more losses it's experienced through time. And then relatively, I should say, if it's a weapon that evolved early on it's subsequently been lost a lot more than it's been gained but if it's a weapon which has only appeared quite recently then it's still being gained more than it's being lost so you know that's kind of what you'd expect these new traits are kind of finding their feet evolutionarily some of these weapons were pretty ancient right yes that's exactly where i was going yes exactly we're talking some as old the rostral appendages so yes spiky nose horns at least 65 million years ago so 65 Million That's years the end ago. of your dinosaurs, right? 65 million years ago. Mm. Which I the think kind of makes... getting wiped out. It makes sort of intuitive sense, them. right? You've just had this massive... Horny. Uh, sort of disturbance. Lots of species loss. We know that other groups experienced a sort of... Like diversification post 65 million years, right? So it makes sense that maybe chameleons were also had a lot of options open to them and maybe that sort of 
competitiveness also bled into weaponry and things as well. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't mention that, actually. That's kind of quite a compelling point. It is very well-timed at the end of the dinosaurs there. But yeah, so many of the weapons were old. You know, a lot of them, pretty much 10 out of the 11 were estimated to be at least 30 million years old. So one chameleon or another has had this feature for at least 30 million years, at least in the males. And the only exception was tail spines, which we already decided was one of the least threatening (laughs) things that they could get. But yeah, that only appeared first a maximum of 8 million years ago. So tail spines are the trait. Which well, maybe, see, maybe we just haven't given them enough time. Most recently. Give them another 8 million and maybe there'll be Stegosaurus level, like, proper spikes. You'd think that a chameleon, right, if it could evolve long spines, think about avian predators, right? But then think you're a shrike, let's say, yeah. swooping in to get a chameleon. Yeah. The chameleon has got insane vision, right? If you could just give it a chance... It could get the tail spine, turn it around, and whomp the bird before it even <laughs> got a chance. Depending on to the speed of the tail movement. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But that would be cool. Maybe we need to give tail spines a chance. But yeah, most of these traits are really old. And I think the key thing is that through time, through evolutionary time, they're very flexible in their evolution. They're coming, yes. they're going as and when they're needed. It does. Which is kind of the same pattern is what we saw when we were looking at the head appendages of snakes wasn't yes, it? yes yes very similar it's, it feels like quite a fluid dynamic system it seems quite flexible and sort of responsive to whatever is driving this because this paper doesn't really you know it's not trying to answer the question of what's driving it but there is a suggestion that they are more connected to male male competition because it does seem to be the tendency that the males are evolving them before their appearances in females or at the same time as the females so it was a little bit sort of not super clear cut yeah i found that whole thing kind of weird man because like they treated the males and the females completely separately in their models so like all the females evolving the traits seem to be like pushed forward in time a bit compared to the males but i wasn't sure whether that might be five and 15 i think it was million years yeah but i don't know like the female tree has so many more losses or like sorry so many fewer characters i just wondered if it was like it seems weird to me that the that a male would evolve a trait and then a female evolve it 15 million years later i feel like in so many cases the morphology of males and females is like broadly similar yeah maybe with horns but well, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there would be a lot of connection. I don't know enough about how the ancestral models operate. No, I don't. It was just a but thought, But I really. wouldn't have thought it's wise to run them as independent models. That would have been my guess. Yeah, it seems weird, right? Yeah. It seems I weird. Because male know. and female morphology is so, so tightly bound together. You know, like, yeah. so many animals, the females have just like a less dramatic version of the ornamentation that males have. Well, but- or it's the genes are present, but they're not active or something along those lines. So the, the capacity's there, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough yeah. about it to speak on it, but... No, I don't. I just thought it was an interesting uh, thought. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on the analysis at all, which is more like saying, hmm, I wonder if maybe if they were somehow intertwined, it might have been a bit more informative. Cause- well, and they do say that it's not, you know, the differences aren't very much. And I think that that's an important point to remember because you're talking about several million years but like how confident are you in the exact divergence dates of these groups anyway hmm. so yeah yeah i think the thing is as well it, there is a suggestion that these a lot of these weapons are also potentially useful for the females as well yes you know like females although they're not 
necessarily competing for mates maybe in the same way that males are they might still be competing with each other in some circumstances you know over territory or whatever you know they may be competing with males too over territory yeah the territory thing's interesting because they do bring up like the ones that have been studied looks like female territoriality is less of a thing and they're happy to sort of coexist and overlap but yeah you know we're talking about a few species out of 165 slash 219 how widespread is that behavior yeah 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 this is it and this is like this is kind of this kind of ties into what i thought i feel like if it was useful for the females the females would just evolve it at the same time as the males like they just hang on to it but yeah, yeah i guess it just depends how these traits work and how uh some of them certainly seem connected that's the other thing is they don't you know we're treating these weapons as they're fully independent but it they show that some of them sort of appear more closely together than separate so we had the gula spines and gula crests popping up together and we've got the tail spines and tail crests popping up together and ventral and dorsal crests at the same time so there's it's not like these weapons are a single trait necessarily it might be a suite of traits that are expressed slightly differently in two sexes as well so it's Hmm. you know they're interconnected but just maybe being expressed in different ways so it's yeah yeah, it's very confusing, especially when you consider that, like, yeah, these are weapons, but they're also potentially attractive. Yes. And then also they might have a role in, like, camouflage. You know, if you're breaking up the outline of a yep. head with a silly horn, that might be cool. Looks less like a chameleon. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it opens the door for a lot more questions because then you start talking, thinking about, like, honest and dishonest signals. Because you do have to female mate choices, obviously having some role somewhere as well as the male-male combat aspect. So it's... Yeah. It's tricky to work out, but I think the sort of key finding of that it's very dynamic and seems to have lost and gained throughout. There's not like a consistent trend towards a certain type of weaponry and getting sort of stuck in that certain type of weaponry. Yeah. Seems to be a thing. And certainly the weapons evolving prior to the sort of species is an intriguing finding as well, right? So these traits these weapons have existed longer than some of the species that have them. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like things like that. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think overall, they don't mention this in the paper, but the best thing about it is that it's just cool to think about comedians with weapons. Um, <laughs> and it's fun. Like, yeah. it's really fun. They're seeing the diversity of the weapons that they have and, yeah, thinking about how they've been gained and lost over time as they've needed them or not needed them. I reckon, uh, yeah, hopefully there'll be more stuff about chameleon weapons coming out. I'd like to see things which look at how weapons could help them be camouflaged and stuff like that. Like, Yeah, that was I one of know. the points they, how... they sort of end on is how, because we know other, in other groups, I think they, they bring up a gamuts, is it? There are trade-offs between weapons and sort of appendages and where they're living, sort of habitat situations and sort of life. I was going to say lifestyle choices. <laughs> But you know what I mean? The sort of how they're living. Yeah. Because these things aren't in isolation. And that's why we we always harp on about studies that are done in the wild because it's sort of somewhat capturing a lot of that noise of being out and about in the wild as opposed to very controlled lab and very reductionist. And I would love to see this same analysis with a whole bunch of the habitat and like life history stuff basically integrated into it. But that means a lot more field studies on these chameleons to work out how they live, which that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, that'd be fun. (laughs) Yeah. Right on, man. Well, I think that's just about it for chameleons and uh, the evolution of their weapons such that they are. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. 
Yeah, so... Really cool paper, really cool paper. It was. Have you got any other business for this episode? Uh, no, nothing. Okay, well, I've just got one piece of any other business. As you know, I've kind of begun a journey into fish biology <laughs> professionally to some extent. And uh, I found out about a fish called the bitterling this week. Have you heard about this fish? The bitterling? The bitterling. I've never heard about the this bitterling. fish. But then I haven't heard about I need many a little, fish. Maybe I should do a soundbite for news from the world of fish or something like that. But basically, yeah, the bitterling is this fish, right? And they lay their eggs in freshwater mussels. So the female has this extra long ovipositor, right? It's like a really long tube. Like a it looks like think way longer like if this fish is i don't know how long the fish are but it's like the body length of the fish yeah i feel like sick wasps and stuff have like insanely long to get inside a fruit oh do they i think so yeah i don't know i just thought you meant oh common wasp oh i wasn't thinking no sorry i was thinking like fig wasp and like weird parasitic Uh, wasps if they have a long ovipositor very similar but yeah so these bitterling they have this really long ovipositor, and what they do, they lay their eggs inside the gills of a mussel, freshwater mussel, the little bivalves. So they poke their ov- ovipositor down into the mussel, and they lay their eggs in the gills. And then the male fish comes along and sprays milk all over the mussel, and the mussel unwittingly inhales the milk with its inhalant siphon, which means that the eggs are fertilized in the gills. So the eggs then develop inside the gills of the mussel. With a nice supply of oxygenated water yep. because it's right nice next stable to the environment, inhalant I siphon. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, you might think that, you know, once the eggs hatch, the muscles ordeal would be over. But no, once the embryos have completed their development and they look like little fish, they live inside the gills of the muscle for several weeks. While they're in there, they're competing with the muscle for oxygen. So this is a parasitic relationship. And the muscles don't want the bitterling in there. So... It's actually led to this insane arm race between the muscles and the bitterling, where basically if you you can kind of tell how long the muscle species has been enduring this disrespect. If it's many millions of years that the muscles coexisted with the bitterling, it will have an ejection rate of the eggs as high as 80%. So, you know, they have strategies to try and like wiggle the eggs loose. And because of this, the bitterling have evolved eggs that come in all different shapes and sizes to try and ah, like lodge better inside yeah, to, the to, to muscle. spike into the gills. <laughs> yeah. Like little so birds, you get, like, little seed pods. Yeah, some of them are round. Some of them are like sausages. Some of them are literally like the shape of um, like a light bulb to try and like lodge in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the muscles want no part of it. It's just this mental relationship. I had no idea this existed. That's yeah, so cool. Pretty insane. Yeah, pretty disrespectful to the muscle, you know, just like... Pretty disrespectful. I mean, any any parasite yeah. is somewhat disrespectful. Yeah, it's true. That one's, yeah, but- yeah take care of my children. That's outrageous. Literally just do it all. But yeah, bitterling. I mean, they look pretty nondescript as a fish. They're just a little silver fish. But yeah, I thought that was wild. <laughs> Amazing. Bizarre. But that's the, uh, yeah, that's the only other, any other business I've got. Fish news. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, fish news. So um, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to ask a question, or if you want to correct something that we've said, if we made a mistake, you can. Highlights at gmail.com. Similarly, we are on social media, so um, catch us on there. But yeah, I think that's about it. So thank you for listening. Thanks for listening.